It's June 1981, and in this interview episode of the Atari 8-Bit Magazine and Game Podcast, we look at the magazine's Atari connection, compute, creative computing, and soft side, and then have an interview with Michael Current, keeper of an epic high score list of 8-Bit games, as well as the maintainer of two large web projects, the Atari 8-Bit FAC, and the fantastically detailed timeline of the Atari corporate history. Also, the tech segment makes its first real appearance, I get some editing help, and I continue to plug the Atari Party 2015. This is the Player Missile Podcast. I'm the new robot overlord, and we're ready for episode 9. Hi there, welcome back to Player Missile, the podcast where we talk about Atari 8-bit games and magazines. And there's no game review this episode. Instead, in these next couple episodes, I've got a couple of interviews, and so this one I'm going to talk with Michael Current, who is the maintainer of the Atari 8-bit fac and has a really excellent detailed history of the Atari Corporation timeline, starting from with the early Pong days and going through all the iterations of the various stages of the companies. And I'll include links to that in the show notes. But he also has a, a big page of high scores listing a whole bunch of games and some really impressive high scores. So I want to talk to him about his experience gaming and also just to talk a little bit about how he created the um, the timeline that I use all the time in the research for this podcast. And while I try not to be terribly topical about current events and stuff, I am going to relentlessly plug the Atari party in uh, Davis, California. It's May 2nd, 2015. Bill Kendrick puts it, this on every year, and it's uh, back in his hometown of Davis. It's going to be at the Davis, one of the Davis Public Library branches. I will be there. I'm going to show up. I'm going to bring a Raspberry Pi running uh, emulation software for the Atari 800. I'll probably also put the 2600, 5200, uh, 7800 if I can get mess running on a Raspberry Pi. Because I think that's the only way to run the 7800 uh, via emulation at this point. And I'll also put on some Atari arcade games and run MAME. So hopefully, you can, if you're in the Bay Area or you want to make a trip out of it, come out to Davis and visit with uh, Bill Kendrick and stop by, say hi to me if you'd like. And I'll, I'm also going to give away a couple things. I'm going to give away the Raspberry Pi that I'm going to demo at the Atari party. And I also have a couple uh, USB to DB9 joystick adapters that I'm going to give away. As you may recall, I'm a Linux guy, and so these joystick adapters also work on Linux. I worked on a bit of a driver that allows them to work, and another guy figured out more of the details of the driver, but if you want to see a little bit of my code, you can check out my uh, GitHub site. I'll include that on my in the show notes. Kansas Fest is also coming up. It's in July. I'm still planning on going to Kansas Fest, although... The travel plans are kind of been complicated because there's an arcade game festival here in the Bay Area called California Extreme that's on that weekend. So Kansas Fest starts on like the, I don't know, 12th or something of July. Hi, new robot overlord here helping with the editing. It's Tuesday the 14th of July. And goes through that weekend and California Extreme is the 18th and 19th. So I'm trying to go to both. So I think I might go to Kansas Fest for like Wednesday, Thursday, Friday and then come back and go to California Extreme on the Saturday and Sunday. So I don't know, these two big events I want to go to, and they're both at the same time. Crazy. 
Sounds like uh, on Twitter, Kevin Savitz said he already got his plane tickets to Kansas Fest. I think I'm trying to go. I think Wade from Inverse Tasky is, is thinking about going. So have a maybe significant Atari presence, uh, Atari podcaster presence at Kansas Fest. Thought about even trying to do a talk about Atari or 6502 or something, something to get the Atari on the Kansas Fest schedule. I don't know. We'll see. Okay, let's do a little feedback. I got feedback just today, actually, from uh, Rex Allison, who said he's a Commodore guy. But he says, uh, I really enjoyed the podcast, especially the technical parts of the show. Magazines and typing programs were such a huge part of my childhood. And I'm still catching up. I'm on episode 7. And he says, oh, P.S., I built three Raspberry Pi tabletop arcade machines. And he sent me a picture of these. They're really cool. It's like kind of the width of a like a 19-inch monitor. And, but it's just like a wooden frame that has the arcade controls, you know, the sticks and buttons and stuff. And it's got a kind of a slot that the arcade monitor rests in, or the LCD rests in. And uh, he said he got spousal approval because he built them for his kid's school festival. And he said, well, of course, the school festival is only one weekend of the year, but the rest of the year we perform uh, in-home testing and upgrades. So that's totally awesome. I love it. I've got um, some progress in my main cabinet. I spent a lot good portion of my free time the past week trying to get this cabinet up and working and of course it just takes forever it takes a lot longer than i plan the woodworking and stuff and then just the planning just i've never done one of these things before and i've i've got kind of a write-up going on both on uh, the playermissile.com webpage and there's a forum post on the uh, atari age and there's i've already learned a bunch of lessons that i will hopefully not repeat when i build a i'm gonna build a second cabinet that's a so this first cabinet is an upright kind of full-size arcade camp cabinet. I posted a picture on um, on Twitter and Vertvik, who, Victor Marlin, who is on the 10 Pence Arcade podcast, sent back a note and said, Tempesty! And yes, it's very Tempest, like I've copying, I'm pretty much copying the Tempest shape. But it's going to have, you know, swappable uh, modular control panel, so um, instead of having just like a joystick or like a, the whole big Franken panel thing, I'm going to be able to swap them in and out and have a, a trackball or a spinner and flight stick and stuff for Tron and, um, you know, spinner, of course, for Tempest, double joysticks for Robotron, you know, that kind of stuff. But anyway, yeah, so the, the woodworking is just tough. It's hard to, I'm, you know, I've, I've got some tools and stuff, which makes a big difference. Having a table saw is a big help. and But still, just the planning on how to, I'm, I'm, I have these bunch of angles. The problem with the Tempest cabinet, of course, is, is all angles. And I haven't do a lot of like sort of test fitting, even even though I have a SketchUp design that I'm trying to follow. It's my my tolerances are not quite right, so I'm trying to build this thing and you know off by a quarter inch here and there on all these angles adds up, and so it's like I'm hard, having a hard time placing it using the using my instructions. So I'm having to do everything by hand and you know measuring and stopping, going back, and then like oh that doesn't quite work, so figuring out how can I cover up my mistake. Yeah, so it's slow going. Hopefully when I do get to the the cabaret machine, I'm also going to kind of follow the Tempest design, but it's it's less angular, and it's it was kind of a... I found a link, and if I can remember where it is, I'll include it in the show notes, but there's like... Um, Atari built only uh, two or three standards like cabaret sizes. I think the link I found actually was for... A, the, the factory was in was it Tipperary, Ireland, where they built a lot of the cabinets, and so they sort of standardized on a, a bunch of different or a few different cabaret styles. And I think Tempest and Centipede were sort of the same style of cabarets, and it's much less angular than the upright Tempest cabinet. 
But anyway, if you're wondering where some of the delay was, I promised this episode would be a little more timely than previously, and it's, I guess it will be, but not as timely as I hoped it would be. I thought, oh, it'll only take me a couple days to assemble this meme cabinet, and it's been like well over a week, and yeah, it's standing upright on its own, but there's still a lot of work to do. But if you're interested in my progress, I'll include a couple links in the show notes that you can check out. I am having fun building it, I must say. It just, it is taking a while. I do have a couple corrections from last episode as well. Um, I mentioned Wade's Inverse Sataski podcast and some of the applications that I thought he might review, and it turns out he already had reviewed Letter Perfect, and I'd forgotten. Wade has an episode guide on Inverse Sataski that I will now consult more regularly when I'm talking about stuff that he's referenced or might reference. And I'm totally borrowing the phrase episode guide for the Player Missile podcast website. I had been saying, like, previous and planned episodes, which is, like, super clunky. So when Wade came up with his episode guide, I was like, oh, that's the perfect phrase. I need to use that. So I'm stealing that, Wade. I'm borrowing your phrase. Oh, in addition to a little bit, I uh, mentioned the Listic, which was a joystick sort of without a base, and I found a review of that in an uh, electronic games magazine. I don't recall the issue. I haven't written that down. But it was a Mercury Switch based. So yeah, probably something that wouldn't fly today. I don't know that you can sell... Um, item that has, you know, sloshing mercury around to something that is, is going to be used by kids. It pro- probably wouldn't work today. Oh, and briefly, I want to talk about this article. I'd, I ran across it several months ago, and in the meantime, uh, Carrington mentioned it on No Quarter. It's called An Experiment in Forced Nostalgia, where this dad sort of introduced video games to his young son, kind of in chronological order. So he started off with the really early stuff and worked his way up. And the and his son became just ridiculously good at games in the space of a couple of years. I mean, you think he, in the time of the article, he was like, it's from ages four to six or something. And just, yeah, just became outstanding at games. And so this is kind of what my goal for the main cabinet was, was to have, to introduce, you know, these old school games to my kids and have them learn and appreciate the older games and the, with the idea, you know, the gameplay was important and the graphics weren't that important. So as I get the main cabinet done and get it plugged in, that's, I don't know if I'll have quite the, quite the write up that, that this guy did, but I'll include a link to this article in the show notes. It's, it's a fun read for sure. Let's hit the tech section of the podcast. So as I mentioned last time, I'm going to start this certainly multi episode, uh, arc about trying to get the game Star Raiders to not slow down during the explosions. As I mentioned last time, there was an interview with Doug Neubauer, the author, who said, you know, due to, I'm sure doing, due to time and space constraints and stuff, just didn't have, just wasn't able to, to fully optimize the division routine. Because you know, they crammed Star Raiders into an 8K cartridge, which is just amazing. So my goal is to replace the division algorithm, because he said the division algorithm, because the, the explosion, the particles are in 3D space, and so each one of these particles... You've got to at least divide for the distance so you can see how far away it is and how how fast it's going to move. Because the, the further away it is, the slower it's going to appear to move. So my goal is to ignore memory constraints so I'll have the whole 48K of RAM available and come up with some faster division algorithm. In the last episode I mentioned there's there's several categories of division algorithms. And uh, we'll get into that more later as, we, as I actually get into the code. For the first meaty bit of the tech section, I'm just going to cover setting up 
the game and how to get it to build. Because it, it's definitely a prerequisite to get the source code to build into something you can run before you can do anything else. So the sort of ubiquitous program is um, CC65. There's another, there's other assemblers. I think MADS is another assembler. But CC65 is one that's, that's commonly used. And so I'll include a link to that in the show notes. The original author doesn't maintain it anymore, so a new author is maintaining it. I run on Linux, and so for Linux stuff, it's pretty easy just to compile things because you have a compiler built into the into your distribution in most cases. So on Linux, you just grab the source, unzip it, and go to the top level directory and just type make, and it'll build. There's, It doesn't take any real fancy things of a compiler, so probably whatever your default GCC is is going to work. On Mac... There's no package available for, or no binary for, for the Mac that I could find. But Mac also includes the compiler by default. It's Clang. Uh, I haven't actually tried compiling it with Clang, but I will at some point. I'm, I bet I do have a Mac, access to a Mac. But so you can compile CC65 using Clang and then you should be able to go. On Windows, it's a little bit harder because generally you don't have a compiler. But there's a Windows snapshot available in the uh, GitHub source of the current maintainer. So you can download that someplace, and you should be able to compile uh, using the CC65 executable that's provided there. So I got CC65 working on my Linux machine, got the Star Raider source, and I've got a fork of it going on GitHub. I haven't actually changed anything yet, but it, I'll include a link to my GitHub so you can download the source. The make file is set by default to create a cartridge, and so I will, one of my next steps after this episode will be to figure out how to make a regular sort of EXE binary out of it. But for today, for this episode, I'm just trying to compile it. So I ran CC65 using the supplied make file, and sure enough, it created a cartridge executable. I ran it on the Atari 800 emulator, and it worked. So yay, that's a good first step. So to be able to run it from source, so at least we know that works. So stuff that I can change now, will I'll be able to test. So that was the first step. So if you want to follow along at home, you can <laughs> download the source, Download CC65, compile CC65, get the Star Raider source going, and you'll be at the same place that I am right now. Yeah, last time I played Star Raiders was for my episode one of the podcast, which was out last year. Gosh, yes, it's been like eight months or so that I've been doing this. And for more commentary on Star Raiders, Willie from the ClickVisions and various other podcasts, and he's Arcade USA on YouTube, has a YouTube review of Star Raiders, so I'll include a link link to that in the show notes. And also, Wade of Inverse Tasky has a, a 6502 blog where he's he started learning 6502 assembly. And I'd run across it in the past and I just I forgot to mention it. And then I think actually I ran across it before he started doing his um, Inverse Tasky podcast. But yeah, so I rediscovered it again. And so he just did a, a recent update where he talks about display list interrupts. And so he's got a a nice example and a, a really detailed walkthrough of uh, setting up display list interrupts. He has a little a basic program. So I'll include a link to his blog in the show notes as well. All right, let's start flipping through some magazines. First one we're going to look at is Atari Connection for summer of 1981. This is the in-house Atari magazine, kind of glossy, you know, it's the mouthpiece of Atari. It's 32 pages and three bucks cover price. There's, and this... In this um, issue, there's a picture of five kids on the cover. They're sitting around the Atari 400, and it says the Atari product catalog is included. And flipping through inside, there, on the new products, there's a conversational French, German, and Spanish. 
which I've heard are really good programs, and they're on the list for way to review. I think he was going to review French, I think, if I recall. I should look at his new episode guide. And yes, it's French. So thanks, Wade, for the episode guide. <laughs> yeah, on the facing full page of that uh, new products list, there's a there's an ad with a woman holding the manual for the conversational Spanish. It's a big binder, like a big three three ring binder. So you know, it looks it looks super involved, and um, yeah, I'm looking forward to to Wade checking that out. As you might remember from my poor attempts at French pronunciation, I did take a little bit of French, and maybe this would have helped. I should have looked into this. Other new stuff they list, list uh, missile command which I will review at some point soon in the 1981 uh, time frame that we're still talking about before we get to 82 games. And they also there's a new ad for Asteroids, which was, I think, Todd Fry's only Atari 800 game. Todd Fry's a famous uh, 2600 developer. He did... What did he do? He did the Sword Quest series. Shoot, what else did he do? He did something big. Huh. Yes, that would be Pac-Man for the 2600. I know Ferg's covered him a couple times. They also announced the Atari word processor, which Wade covered in his, his very first episode, Season 1, Episode 1, which is its precursor to Atari Writer. So yeah, I encourage you to go listen to his episode where he talks about that and uh, the differences between some of the other word processors. There's more Atari ads. There's a... the advertise a price reduction for the 16K RAM um, upgrade. It used to be $199 and it's down to $99.95, which is $260 in today's money, or in 2014 dollars. Yeah, as the podcast goes on, I think, I don't know, do I keep saying dollars in 2014 dollars when I started, or, I don't know. There's an article about the Atari computer making rendezvous with the space colony possible. So they simulated a space mission to Space Colony L5, which sounds like they locked seven people in a room for three days. Kind of a, a softer version of the Stanford prison experiment. Yeah, it includes an unfortunately worded line reading today. It says, unlike the recent Columbia space shuttle, the computer operated without a hitch. And of course, in 2003, the Columbia disintegrated on re-entry, killing all seven astronauts. I'm a big fan of space and space travel, and so I'm just going to include a little moment of silence here for all the men and women who've lost their lives in the space program. And unfortunately, the the Columbia accident, NASA made some of the same mistakes that happened in the Challenger program in that they ignored some warnings. You know, the Challenger blew up because the O-rings and the solid rocket boosters were too cold and they couldn't expand to their normal volume quick enough when heated. And so gases escaped and hit the external tank and, and blew up on launch. On the Columbia, that happened because there, or the, some of the foam from the external tank was being knocked off and happened to hit some of the, um, some of the ceramic tiles on the wing in such a way that when the, the shuttle came back, to in reentry, the the really hot plasma of the reentry got in, into the internal structure of the wing and melted some of the structures and disintegrated the ship. And so there were there were warnings in both cases that were ignored, or just the seriousness of them was not appreciated at the time. Uh, I guess you know space travel is a dangerous thing, and but uh, hopefully these kind of disasters will not happen in the future. Anytime you talk about space disasters, the, the movie Gravity comes up, and that's a great movie if you haven't seen that. It's like five minutes of cool space images and exposition stuff, and then like 85 minutes of white-knuckle terror. It's, uh... Yeah, I just... <laughs> or just coming of that out of the movie theater just like sweating, you know, just like... And some people have, like, criticized the movie for 
not being scientifically af- accurate in terms of you know orbital mechanics, and, you know, that, and that's true. But I understand why they did all that stuff for the movie. You have to you have to condense a lot of stuff, and that you know uh, an orbital orbital mechanics lecture in a movie was not would not be a lot of fun. But I mean, for, for what they're complaining about, for instance, is like to visit another satellite, say behind you in orbit. You actually have to you have to find some way to slow down, and if you point at something behind you in orbit and thrust toward it, you will actually. This sounds strange, I know, but you'll actually move ahead of it because what you're doing by by thrusting toward something behind you, so thrusting backwards, you're actually lowering your orbit. But stuff that's lower in orbit actually travels faster around the Earth. So by lowering your orbit and slowing down, you actually increase your distance away from something behind you. So what you actually have to do is you have to thrust away from something. So thrust ahead in your orbit and increase your orbit to a higher altitude, which something in a lower altitude will circle the Earth faster. So it actually goes ahead of you and then you have to thrust away again to lower your orbit. So it's it's definitely backwards, but that's hard to explain in a movie. So, I mean, I'm fine with all the choices they made in the movie. I thought it was a great movie. So, yeah, go see it. So, yeah, so if, if you haven't noticed by now, I will go on crazy tangents when we talk about math stuff and space stuff. And hopefully the tangents aren't too long, but I like them, so they're going to stay in. So, there you go. So, yeah, anyway, back to the magazine. So the one thing I do like about the Atari Connection is they they have little snippets of, you know, small little basic programs. And there's, there's an article here about, you know, how to disable the brake key. And they have a whole page worth of teeny little programs that are uh, sound generation programs. So here's one for some running footsteps. And here's one for the ocean. They have a few articles in a section titled Kid Bits, where there are simple programs that kids could either type in or... or Little demos that they can see. And there's an, a request that says, uh, we'll give you a free Atari t-shirt if you send in an article on how you use your Atari or a program you've written. You must be 18 year old, years old or younger. And they uh, highlight a newspaper management program that uh, a 14 year old boy and his father wrote. They said, a program so good it's being sold through APX. So yeah, it's APX2, let's see, the part number is APX2. Two zero zero one three for seventeen ninety five, and sort of the last interesting thing here is a article on the naming of Atari. So it's how did how did the company end up with the Japanese name? So this story has been told a bunch of times. They were originally the company was called Syzygy, which as a space buff, it, it, it's up my alley. It's a straight line configuration of three celestial bodies. So uh, Nolan Bushnell and Ted Dabney applied for name the copyright for the name Syzygy, but California, there was another company already there, so they had to submit a couple other corporation names to the to California. And I, the first one they chose was Sente, which is uh, from the game of Go, which apparently means the upper hand. The second choice was Atari, which is similar to meaning check, which I guess is a bunch... You, you announce it before a bunch of your opponent's stones might be captured. And Hana, I guess how you pronounce that, H-A-N-N-E, which is the acknowledgement of an overtaking move, it says. So the Secretary of State's office chose Atari, and then they, uh, Bushnell and Dabney wanted to change the logo, they said. So so they had an original logo that had both sort of an A and an S, but they changed it to the now famous uh, Fuji symbol. And that's what we all associate with Atari now. All right, let's move on and talk about Compute. This is 
Compute number 13 for June of 1981. The cover is computerized talking greeting cards on your Atari. Or at least that's the Atari stuff on the cover. There's an article about mapping and modifying unknown machine language. It's a, a pet-specific article, but it's, it's interesting enough from a, a technical point of view. It's like, this is an article about how you modify binary programs when you don't have the source code. It's kind of reminds me of the Sabotage episode we talked about a few episodes back. So this is talking about how to change a word processor to set up a printer for proportional spacing so that this uh, word processor doesn't have the ability to enter like specific printer codes or something. So we, the author looks at how you go about hacking code. So you look at, you know, the memory map of the machine itself. Then you start like looking for strings or some way to identify parts of the code. And finally to be able to use the machine language monitor to break into the code and at particular points and find out where, where the code path is, has been taken. The Atari doesn't have a built-in monitor. I ended up later on getting a, something called an Omnimon, which gave me the ability to stop in, stop programs and break into the middle of whatever was running. And you'd pop up into the monitor and you can check the, you know, the program counter and you can figure out where, what was going on, what registers were being filled with which values. And, uh, it was great help for me to <laughs> break in copy protection. There's an article about floating point addition and subtraction. And it's part of a series, and I guess I must have missed some of it, because I don't remember covering this. But it's interesting. This is before the IEEE standard for floating point. And kind of going on with the math theme, there's an article about square roots, and there's an assembly language routine, a highly optimized one, to cal- calculate square roots of integers. And I looked at the machine language source, and it's like, it's tough to figure out. So I had to go back. So I found a couple links about how you do square roots by hand. I don't know if you remember how to do this. I didn't recall. I remember doing it in school, you know, pencil and paper, but I didn't recall how to do it. Some, it was, I remembered it being sort of like division, but then I had to go back. So you, it's like you group numbers into pairs and you kind of do this little sort of song and dance about, there's a lot of guessing involved, but that's essentially what this algorithm does is it's, it's decoded that into a really, it's only about 20 instructions. It's really compact. The author was Leo Scanlon, who I knew that name from somewhere. I had to go back and look. He wrote a bunch of low-level books, like on 6502 and then uh, 68000, and I think that's where I remember him. I think I had a 68000 book by him. But he also did books on the 8086 family of uh, assembly language. In the Atari Gazette, there's a, an XY pro- plotting program with scaling. Um, it's a bunch of little programs this time. There's a one for how to draw mode 0 characters in graphics 8. So you essentially, you look up the font tables, the character set, and you can draw them on top of graphics 8. So you're not mixing graphics 0 and graphics 8 display modes. You're actually drawing the characters on a graphics 8 screen. So it's a little assembly language program to do that. There's a little basic program that does disassembly of 6502. It's kind of nice. I like this program. I use those a lot. There's an ad for the Axlon memory upgrade, or the RAM disk thing. Which makes it seem like it's bank switching and not a RAM disk, but it can be used like a RAM disk. I don't know. I'm going to have to look up that more. I, I did find a, I found a review of, um, the Axelon RAM disk and it kind of makes it seem like it is actually mapped and you have to use a special DOS or something. So yeah, sometime I'll, sometime I'll sit down and, and figure that out, how the Axelon RAM disk works. Continuing on in the, in the Atari Gazette, there's the uh, greeting cards on the computer. It's, so it's basically ASCII art. And you record a message on cassette, and so you ship, you mail this cassette to somebody if they have an Atari, and they can play it, and they get this ASCII art graphics, and and you, they can hear your 
your recorded message. There's another little color burst demo, which is like stars or something, but I didn't type it in. And a binary to decimal converter. And that kind of finishes up the interesting articles. Although there's a, there's a, in the new product section, they show, they list price reductions. So the 400 now comes with a 16K RAM module standard for $399. And there, there are other price reductions that are similar to the stuff that showed up in the Atari connection. Asteroids and Missile Command were $39.95 each, which is $104 in today's, or in 2014 dollars. And a program called the Atari Accountant, which I don't think Wade, Wade has definitely not reviewed that one yet. It costs a whopping $1,499. So that's like $8 billion in today's money. Yeah, $3,900 in $2014. The Creative Computing is Volume 7, Number 6, for June 1981. The cover is uh, graphics and animation is the main theme. There's a, a digital self-portrait. And there's a call-out to some Atari graphics techniques. There's a big article about computers of Hollywood. So it's not CGI yet, but they talk about computers being used as motion control cameras. And specifically, they talk about the movie The Black Hole. So Disney had come up with this system called the ACES camera system, the Automated Camera Effects System, where they take a... The model of the um, Cygnus was like 10 feet long, and so they could, you know, control the camera, and they could repeat all these shots and stuff, and so... It made it seem like it was you know, this mile-long, huge starship. It was a data general system. It had 11 floppies, so each floppy could hold like 99 takes. So they only needed 11 floppies for the whole movie. They talk about another system for Star Trek The Motion Picture, which uh, was more for the computerized sound editing and, uh, I guess what's called, what is it, ADR after dialogue recording or something, where they're re- replacing dialogue, like Foley artists and stuff, where they replace dialogue and sound effects. Sound, there's a sound effects library called Access, which had 1,400 megabytes of sound data, which is an amazing amount of storage at that time. It was all on removable disks, and it had 50 megabytes of working storage, which is still pretty amazing to have access to 50 megabytes at that time. That system used two 8080 processors, and their sound was sampled at 50 kilohertz and 12 bits per sample. It's really, that's, that's pretty high-tech stuff. I mean, that's, the sound quality would be fine nowadays. And, you know, talking 81, that's a long time ago. So we come to the first article by Dave and Sandy Small. And if you haven't heard the great interview with uh, David Small that Antic did, I'll have a link to that in the show notes. I can't remember the episode number off the top of my head, but it was fairly recent. So this article, Atari Graphics Unveiled, it's kind of an overview, a high-level overview of the workings of a TV screen, you know, the scan lines, the raster scan, the electron beam. And then... The how the Atari graphics works, kind of the bits and bytes and how they're mapped to the screen and the character sets and it's all theory. There's no code in this article, but it's a it's a nice little sort of background introduction to um, Atari graphics and then really scanline graphics in general. There's an article about intelligent computer games, kind of the series where this time they talk about Othello or Reverse Eye, I guess, is the non trademark name. So they're talking about how to generate a computer opponent for this. And what are the strategies and, you know, the weighting, they go into like weightings of the board positions, like the, the corners are valued the highest because once you get a corner, that piece can never be flipped back. And uh, they talk about the different strategies in terms of the opening, the middle game and the end game. This is a, you know, it's a much, it's a smaller problem domain than chess. So by now, currently, it's sort of like, com- it's not solved completely, but the strongest computer players can defeat any human. And even back in, uh, this is when 81, 
one of the computer programs, actually two computer programs defeated people. Two different programs defeated a human in, um, in a tournament in 1980. The humans won the tournament, but they're, yeah, so these two computer programs, one program defeated one person and one program defeated a different person. So two computer wins. The Outpost Atari this month is by Paul Hoffman. It's sort of a kind of confusing little, it's a, I don't know, it's a bit confusing mash of like a high level overview and technical detail, which <laughs> I suppose hits close to home, kind of like this podcast is like, I did, I do tend to like to go into the technical subjects a little bit, but it talks about display lists and, and display list interrupts. And, um, I didn't, I found it kind of a confusing description. But also goes into player missile graphics and um, joysticks and stuff, and has a great description about how the light pen works. So a light, the light pen was a something available on the Atari, and I remember making one of these out of, a, of like a little photo cell. And I couldn't figure out how it works, but it, it it figures out the position of the light pen by timing. So it knows how it knows when the electron beam starts the first scan, and then it times it to where it, the photo cell reads the pixel. And that's how it knows the X, Y position, which I, yeah, I never, I thought it was, I thought there was something more magical about it, but it's just a, so this section is, the Outpost Atari is just three pages, so it's small. And I think maybe next month might be when Dave and Sandy Small take over, but I haven't read yet, ahead yet, so we'll find out next month. And one final thing in this magazine is there's an ad for Computer Shopper magazine, which I don't really remember reading till, you know, sort of the PC assemble it yourself era. But there was some discussion about this magazine amongst the Twitter people that I follow. So I thought that was interesting that it was available way back then. Oh, and would you be surprised that the back cover has an ad for the Ohio Scientific Computer? Final magazine we'll look at this episode is Softside, issue number 33, June 1981. The cover is Old Glory, so it's a picture of the original 13-star flag along with the current 50-star American flag. Flipping through the magazine, it's the first ad that I can remember that's not for TSE Hardside. So it's an ad for Adventure International, which is a division of Scott Adams, Inc. So it's a mostly a blank ad, a lot of white space, and it, but it offers a free catalog. So it's called Toll Free and Enough Said, it says. So Scott Adams was a very famous computer author at this time. And they also have this um, column by Scott Adams that I'll get to in just a second. So there are a couple games. There's a, one about Volcano. It's kind of like a quiz and a survival test afterwards, which places you on Mount St. Helens at the start of the eruption, and you have to choose your course of action. Mount St. Helens erupted in 1980, is that right? So this is pretty topical for the time. There's a game called Catacomb of the Phantoms, and yeah, I don't know, I have no idea, it's a text adventure or something, you're entering your commands, but your commands are like numbers, so you have like, enter a room number to go to, or enter number 77 to fight, or 88 to search for gold. Or, yeah, honestly, I don't know. I couldn't be bothered. I'm sorry about that. So Scott Adams' column called Say Yo-Ho, he talks about going to the uh, couple computer fairs, the 6th Annual San Francisco Computer Fair and the inaugural Dallas Computer Show. He talks about meeting Bill Hogue of Big Five Software, who was a big TRS-80 guy, apparently, but the way I know him the best is for Minor 2049er, which is a, a great, if very hard game, really good platformer. At the San Francisco show, he said he was talked about meeting Ken and Roberta Williams. And he said, I'm sure we'll be hearing even more from them in the coming years. <laughs> Which is true. They were certainly they were just getting started in 81 with, with online. And they, they did a lot of things. He said the attendance of that show was over 30,000. 
And he went on to say that Adventure International was going to exhibit at 30 shows in 1981, so wow, that's a lot of traveling. He talks about the Dallas show, and I, I, yeah, I don't know much about the Dallas show. I don't know if, how much longer it went on, um, but he seemed to, he seemed to enjoy it, it being a smaller show. And then he also related a story about how floppy disks were made, which is, which is pretty cool. They, uh, he described, I think he got a tour of, a must have been the verbatim factory somewhere, and they take mylar and run it through what he said what looks a lot like a mud bath, which is the, contains the magnetic media and, and adhesive. And then they put the, the mylar through a, an oven to bake the materials onto it, and then flip it over and do the same for the backside. And then this, he says the roll is then sliced up into smaller rolls for computer tape, or they go to a, the disc punching room where they punch out the circles. Said so they, um, they discard the scraps after the circles are stamped. And it, it said there's a, a lot of, it's a labor intensive process, he said, said, passing from hand to hand. So the, the discs are actually hand loaded into certification machines. And if it fails on a side, then it's downgraded. So instead of double sided, it becomes single sided. Or if, if it, if the double density check fails, then it becomes a single density check. And something I didn't know is that he said that, um, Verbatim told them that each disc is encoded with the manufacturer date and the the number of the of the roll of material it came from, and take this as a with a grain of salt come from a, a manufacturer that doesn't want you to use the backside of discs. But they said it's inadvisable to use a, the backside of a single single sided disc. But of course, you know they have a motivation to sell you more than one disc. And then the one last article. It's not really a game. It's a a, a graphic demo of the flag flying and playing the Star Spangled Banner, which I will include here. So instead of a game review this time, I'm, I'm going to do an interview. Like I said, I've got a, I've got a couple of interviews backlogged, and I want to try to get these out, and the game reviews have been taking a while. So, But fear not, we will talk about games all the time. And also, if, you, if you've not already, jump onto the High Score Club on the Atari Age uh, forums. High Score Club Season 12 is going. Played three games so far. It was Junior Pac-Man, Gyrus, and now just starting, uh, what is it, Food Fight. So I've played all three. I'm, I'm determined to be last on Food Fight. I played that. My first score playing Food Fight was zero, and I did improve on that slightly. But I'm sure I'm going to be last. So I was uh, solidly in the middle of the bottom on the first two games. I had a lot of fun though. So I hope to play this entire season. 
So I'll include a link to the uh, High Score Club. So yeah, jump on and, and come on over and play. I want to thank the real Bounty Bob for coordinating all this stuff. It must be a lot of work getting the spreadsheet going, and he is also um, including a link to the podcast in, in his signature, so thanks a lot for that. So this is an interview with Michael Current, who does the Atari 8-Bit Fact maintains a really detailed timeline of the Atari corporate history and has this amazing list of high scores that I wanted to talk to him about. I recorded the interview on January 16th, 2015. First, I guess my first question is, is, is when, when did you get involved in the Atari computers, like, originally? Was that the first computer you had, or...? Oh, yeah. Um, I believe I, I was in grade school, and the, the school got... Atari 800s in every, well, I think it was every classroom at the very beginning. When I was in fourth, when I was in fourth grade, which was like 81 or so. And then I know that we got ours the Christmas of the next year when I was in fifth grade. So remember that. So was that an 800, I guess? Yeah, I guess the Excels weren't out then. That's right. It was 800 at that point. Did you did you get a lot of software when you first got it? Or did, how how did you acquire most? Of, I, I guess it's kind of a leading question because I I um, I ended up you know I was a, a kid I I'm sim, similar age and and uh, a lot of my software was you know pirated and yeah so yeah we um, we for one thing we never got a modem I got my first modem when I was in when I had my Atari with me in college years later, so we, and we had no user, user group around, so it was, so we had no, no online experience, so no way to get pirated stuff that way. So we were, um, pretty much buying things. Birthdays and Christmases tend to be big Atari moments. <laughs> um, I can remember, you know, getting multiple games and being so shocked at the second box was another game. <laughs> so, um, and then it came to be more, I don't know what the impetus size was, but yeah, we, we bought virtually everything. We did have exactly one batch of pirated stuff that one of my dad's students left with us once. And that was, you know, at the time it seemed like a lot of stuff. It was like two sides of a disc or something, but, um, a lot of good games on there, and also a lot of obscure games on there. Um, and actually, to this day, I've still been trying to buy original copies of some of those things that were on that little collection that we got from that guy. Um, oh, really? Do you remember any titles off the top of your head? Well, the big one is uh, Mar to Sorrow by Synchro, which oh. is an obscure game. I don't think I've ever heard of that. <laughs> and... Um, uh, yeah, I was amazed and impressed that it showed up in Atari Mania, and that we, you can play with the scan of the um, the instructions, which of course we had never seen. We just played it for days at a crack without ever knowing. How huh. it. So yeah, it's it was written in, it's it was written in BASIC by you know who knows who Synchro was a company, and you um, it's just like graphics character graphics, um, and you you are um, trying to recover treasures from the sea, and there, it was a little bit of action involved because you had to take your diver down to the bottom to pick up the treasure and back up without losing enough too much oxygen and without running into sharks and things in the water. But there's also sort of strategy as far as like a map of the 
geography of the area, and if you did it right, you could build up these humongous sums of treasure doing this. Um, everything about it seemed extremely primitive, except that the actual gameplay really worked, and so you could spend hours at this little game and we we famously among our family did that and like a bunch of cousins all gathered around the, the atari playing this strange obscure uh treasure hunting sea hunting game uh collecting uh, you know doubloons and treasures wow. and things so That's yeah and no one and pretty much no one's ever heard of this game but it was one of our <laughs> games actually so that was one. Rear Guard was on there. A tank was on there. Um, yeah. So this would be like 82 games or something like that or yeah, earlier? Pretty much. Some of them were earlier. Mark the Sorrow was actually earlier than that, I think, like 81 or something. Oh, maybe I can cover so that in this next some of these next episodes. I'm still in 81, so trying to find like 81. You know, trying to go by sort of year. and. Oh, okay. I'll have to look at it. So that was that was our one little, little impetus of um, pirated games. But everything else we bought, I, I you know. Yeah, that's uh, it, well, and a recurring theme of the podcast is that all the piracy that went on really killed the market. I mean, it seems like eighty two, eighty three was still, you know, in the kind of the where people thought they could still make money. But after eighty three, it seems like that it went it went down, and people realized that the Atari market was never going to really develop as the Apple II did. And then the Commodore sixty four came in, and you know, all these things kind of. Yeah, inspired. and maybe, maybe Atari's corporate circle running sort of discouraged yeah. one from developing for it for a year or two as well. So Yeah, and in, in addition to the early on times when they didn't release all the developer documentation, you know, it really took Chris Crawford and DeRay Atari before the sort of the third party people had the same kind of access as the internal guys. Yeah, but and that was pretty early. I mean that was eighty one where they yeah. turned that around. So, um, yeah. Yeah, t- well, speaking of time, I mean, I've also, I use your timeline a lot in reference, uh, and, you know, it's hugely detailed. I'm, I've got it up here on the screen looking at it. Um, That's why it's funny here because it's pretty much a solitary activity of mine, and I, it, I, you know, I do it because it's interesting to me, and hopefully. What's interesting in my brain is also yeah. useful for other people, so um, that's nice. Yeah, I, I certainly find it interesting. And you know, in my particular time frame, since I'm going sort of chronologically, I'm I'm in the the history of it's the WCI games slash Atari slash Atari games and Atari Holdings. Yep, it's and, a big one. Yeah, uh, so I didn't really heard of WCI games before. No, I mean, and no one has, and that's kind of fun. One of the things that I found fun to sort of feel like I was maybe the first to do is that I've gone and gotten into my hands copies of some of the original incorporation papers for all the various incarnations of Tari. And so, yes, when when the corporate entity that we all knew as Tari Incorporated was established, it was actually established by Warner Communications under that name, WCI Games. And then after they bought Atari including the name, then they changed the name of that corporate entity to, oh, right. to Incorporated, which happened to be the name of the previous Atari as well. Um, but yeah, it, it all becomes straightforward when you've got the corporate records in front of you, but I, no one 
knew that before, as far as I know, as far as the web knowledge, so to speak. So it's been fun. That's been, that was kind of one of the, I was thinking about that too. One of the, maybe that's how my timeline website idea got started was when I started realizing some of those things, how at the other end of Atari Incorporated, when it changed to Atari Games Inc., but before Warner sold it, that whole little interim stage there where Warner still owned the arcade, but not the consumer stuff. And they changed it to Atari Games. Oh, right, yeah. But they still owned it. And at that time, it was Atari Games Incorporated. It was only after they sold that business to Namco that the, that Atari Games Corporation got created. And I think all that was pretty much unclear on the web. And I felt like my timeline maybe was one of the things that got that straightened out out there. So... Yeah, I'm. I've never really been. And that's a fun thing to do. Collect those corporate records. I've, you know, <laughs> you, just, you spend, you know, some moderate amounts of money to write and send packets to like this California Secretary of State's office. And you, then a couple of weeks later, you get this Christmas present of documentation that pretty much no one has bothered to get before. But it's public. Really, so anyone can do it. You just got to figure out how to go about it. So it's not like it's inside information. It's just making the extra effort to. To get a hold of it. So these are all like the public records they had to s- supply be- because they were a public, or were they? It's because they were a traded corporation, or because they were just a just co- registered because, corporation. Yep, that's right. Because they were incorporated in the state of California, which in which means that the documentation you file is public, and so anybody has always been able to retrieve it if they wanted to, and um, but and they charge fees for it, so it's not entirely free. And everyone who does stuff on the web wants everything to be free, and so. <sighs> A little bit of a financial barrier, I guess, discourages people from doing that, and so it's, right. it's fun to go ahead and do some of that. That, that must have been interesting, like just wading through all that. I'm sure there's just a bunch of financial stuff, and yeah, well, see, it's not really financials. I, I guess uh-huh. I've seen some financials. It's more just sort of basic incorporation and papers and original. Um, what do they call it? Uh, bylaws or something of the of the corporation. And if they change the name, which is another thing I'm always trying to figure out is when entities change names over time, then those are filed with the state that you're incorporated in mm-hmm. as well. And so having the actual document in front of you is the best way possible to determine when and how a name of a company was changed. Um, and it's all done at the state level, and so every state has some different rules about what's available and how to get a hold of it and stuff. Um, modern companies tend to incorporate in Delaware, it seems, oh, as right, yeah. because, in part because it's harder to get at some of these documents that I'm interested in getting at. Oh, really? I always thought it was for tax purposes. But. That's probably that, too. I mean, but it, it seems related to me. There are additional reasons, okay. So I've, I've grown to like California because Atari started there because they make it easy to, to get a hold of this stuff if you want to. And furthermore, they sometimes will have extended sets of documents for companies that were incorporated somewhere else, but want to do business in California. And so when you get their full file of information, you end up getting documents that you couldn't have gotten directly from the other state. Oh, interesting. So, so um, I found that to be handy sometimes as well. So I've done a fair amount of that. I just did a bidding batch that a few months ago and I already have a list of a few things I still want to 
do again if I can if they're in the right states. And uh, but so you're pretty much focused on Atari and its its sort of evolution, not so much the third party companies that dealt with Atari. Well, that's right. I mean, my two big Atari interests are the 8-bit computers, and then I call it like Atari corporate history. And so, yeah, I focus ex pretty much exclusively on Atari itself, the company, and the people who work there. And my some of the timeline website, I sort of have some goals like to try to account for, for instance, everything that they ever released. Uh, through the Atari brand or through that they actually publicly announced. But I don't want to bother with stuff that was in the back room somewhere that they never actually even announced anywhere. So you'd, you'd, so, you'd, you'd something that might be included would be the 1450 XLD, but something that wouldn't be included would be, you know, the. Yeah, a bunch of things. I mean, you know, there are a bunch of other numbers for projects, 1850 XLD and things. But yeah. see, on the other hand, uh, James Morgan once announced or mentioned the 1600 that they decided they were in over their heads in and were going to start developing. And they had never actually announced that before, but people had been, had been kind of oh. working. And so I decided based on that, that, well, it was publicly acknowledged. So maybe I do want to account for that in my timeline. So. Was that the 8086 machine? Um, yes, I think that's one or like the two, the coprocessor machine. Yeah. Maybe it's going to be a 186 or something. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that's the that is the machine, and um, so yeah, if, if it if it sort of turns up in the media somehow because Atari spoke of it themselves, and to me that's kind of enough to for me to feel like I want to account for it in the timeline. Um, yeah, so well, yeah, that's the. I mean, the fun thing about it for me is one thing is that I get to sort of come up with my own parameters for what this product, what the scope of this project is. Of course, it has gotten to be way bigger than I ever anticipated <laughs> it to be, and yet I am kind of excited because I feel like the scope hasn't drifted bigger for a while now, and even though i still got a giant amount of stuff that I've collected that I haven't worked through yet, I feel like it should accelerate because it should become more and more filling in gaps and holes and less and less venturing in new territory where I've never even been before. So um, I do have this dream of eventually having it being entirely roughly the way it's going to be, you know, pending new information turning up, which continues to happen all the time. But as long as what you're going for is not continuing to grow, it seems like the amount of that happening should be less and less over time. I know you've you've referenced some of the uh, Atari Museum stuff, you know, and Kurt Vandell and Marty Goldberg, and yep. Um, have you guys been? Able, have you guys shared information and stuff when you know because they're developing their histories and only slightly. And I would say about that that uh, any good historical research benefits from multiple. People working from multiple angles and using multi, you know, variable strategies, right. which tend to lead them to different information sources, and maybe working with sort of different, semi-different goals in mind. So, um, coincidentally, we had actually exchanged emails, uh, Mario and I, just recently on the, a couple little things. But that's been way more the exception than the rule. We're certainly aware of each other. I bought their book and gave them some money. Uh, I guess my name is in the front of the book because I gave them the 
somewhat larger amount of money. But um, and I've been using their book, but their book for me has been a lot of launching me into investigating things further instead of just taking. Oh right, yeah. Book, and so I've learned a lot that way. Um, there are many, many very small ways that I'm saying different things than they are, and as, if I'm aware of that, it's very likely on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> um, but like I said before, I have an advantage because I'm maintaining a web page, which I can change all the time, where they kind of lock themselves down and print by putting a book out. Right. Yeah, that's a it is different different medium for sure. It's uh... so. You know, we've not discussed anything like this, but to me, it's not a competition. It's just multiple people working in their own ways on similar goals, and everything benefits from that. That that there's different people working instead of um, just like one. This is the truth. This is reality, and no one is allowed to question anything. That would never work. That it shouldn't be that way. Historical research is always like that, where no one—we weren't there. None of us were there, and so we don't know what the reality is. All we can do is um, do the best we can with the information that we have, and this includes, by the way, um, what people remember, because there were people. There are a lot of people who are alive now who were there then, and those guys have done a lot of work interviewing people right. which is fantastic I'm glad they're doing that um, but people it's hard to remember stuff from 20 and 30 or 40 years ago and everyone's memory is a little bit yeah gets a little fuzzy sometimes based and based on that so and plus maybe Atari more than other issue other sort of areas of research a lot of egos can be involved I think that company tended to attract such people <laughs> And and people, you know, looking back there now, we don't know what we're running into as far as that goes. I might remember what I wished had happened, or or I might have put out of my mind what was a terrible experience, or who knows what. And so, um, what I really like is finding documents or media reports or anything from the actual time period. The closer closer we are to the actual time period, the more the less likely thing. Um, Facts have had a chance to drift over time, <laughs> so um, I've been finding and visiting libraries sometimes um, media reports, you know, from the early '70s, <clears throat> where um, you know that stuff hasn't been online, and so that's been a fantastic, fun thing to do, uh, is you know filling in early timeline stuff. Um, on Atari from Bending Times magazine or um, Replay magazine <clears throat> from the you know earlier mid 70s or so, which no one had really done in that way before. So um, I've had a field day doing that. I got to go back there and do it again sometime, make another trip out of it. But um, to me, that's you know interviewing and doing that kind of thing both have their place. I just happen to focus on finding. Probably accessible, but you know, written documentation from the time period is kind of. I figure what I want to focus on. You know, I am a librarian professionally. I guess I tend to that mentality kind of seeps into this whole activity as well. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's coming from that perspective. I mean, that's that's what you do. Is what you're interested in. So that's the mm-hmm. that's the way to go. Yeah. Um, yeah, speaking of magazines, um, so what? In, what are your? What would you say are your sources from the the magazines that reference the Ataris? 
Yeah, and um, you might have seen or not, on also my website, I have a separate page where I list actually my entire Atari magazine collection. So you can see that there. Oh, um, I didn't so, see I, that. so I have, um, you know, I have all issues of Antic Magazine. I have all issues of Analog Magazine, all issues of Atari Explorer Magazine. Um, yeah, probably one that's highly useful and maybe less common is Current Notes magazine, which started out as a user group newsletter from the East Coast and turned into a, like one of the last national magazines. Really? Current Notes? I don't know. But they were always, that was always, until the very end anyway, a very high quality publication. Um, they were doing you know their own writing, their own reporting and everything, and so much more hard information was in that one compared to Antic and Analog, especially Antic, which is some... It, it was close to an official Atari mouthpiece. They didn't really scrutinize what Atari told them. They just... Oh, yeah. So, Analog was... didn't suffer from that, but they were still a glossy national magazine. But some of those, the most major of the user group publications, like Current Notes and... Um, what was it in the Northwest? P P something. Hmm. I don't know that one either. I've got a chunk of those, not all of them. <clears throat> but yeah, I do figure that I've got probably one of the more complete sets of Atari computer-related magazines there is. <laughs> oh, there you go. I see the on the section here. So. Yeah. Um, I've been getting soft sides lately. Those don't have a whole lot of news content like this and then they're more for um type in programs but right yeah i just started uh, a a guy gave me some feedback that i because i hadn't really i don't remember soft side from back then i don't remember seeing it and he said oh i should check it out and yeah I've, it's only been really type in programs yeah um, a few little columns but nothing like the you know the technical stuff you can find it in some of the other multi um, platform magazines like computer creative computing yeah, computes. I've got a large number of those, but I still would like to get the oldest ones of those. Those those early Atari computer years are hard to get in the magazines because the specialized ones hadn't come out yet, mm-hmm. and all the general ones were still trying to figure out whether how much how seriously to take it. So, compute would be a good one to complete. I have all those creative computing. That was a great publication, and by the way, that was Dave All who after that went and ran Atari Explorer for Atari. So. Oh, did he go there? Oh, interesting. <laughs> the two publications actually kind of look similar because he took his whole, I don't know, uh, tools and staff kind of with them to some extent to Atari I, Explorer. I don't think I don't think Atari Explorer is on my list. I'll have to get that one as well. So well, that, was, I, that was the house one that Atari put out. Um, they had the what was it? You know, the, it was uh, connection. The old Atari put out Atari Connection from what eighty two to eighty four or so. And then Atari Corp decided pretty quickly that they wanted to produce a magazine also, and they renamed it for some reason to Explorer. And it kept, Explorer kept going right up until the Falcon was the thing, which was, what, 93, 92 or 93 or so. Something like that, yeah. Um, it never had that much 8-bit stuff since, of course... Yeah, they were focused on the ASTs. But there was a little bit for a long period of time. And I always... I go back to that a lot just to kind of see what 
Atari themselves was saying, or at least what Atari was allowing Dave All's magazine to say, <laughs> it is what happened because Dave All was, you know, he was um, reporting to Atari. He was paid by Atari, but it was he was kind of running it as a, as if it were a separate magazine for a long time. And eventually, Atari didn't like some of the things he was saying, and so they decide we're going to take it in-house again and we don't need you to run a magazine for us because if it's our in-house magazine, we want to have greater control of what we're saying. And so that all happened. So yeah, those are those are some of the magazines I've got and you see, I guess you see the rest of the list. Yeah, that's great. A complete collection of analog, complete antic. Oh, Atari yeah. user, that was those. That was actually hard to get all of those. those are, that's the um, UK? Those, not, uh, well, I have a bunch of those. Oh, that's... Uh, those too, but then there is the American Atari user, which right. is all Atari platforms, a little um, paper thing, but it, was, that, it yeah. was all advertising for revenue, and um, so a lot of ads in it. Um, so yeah, those are good. I think the, the last sort of Atari users group that I was that I belonged to, we'd get that Atari user. The, you know, I, it was like newsprint, is that what it was? That yeah, was, yeah. Yeah. So instead of collecting a bunch of Atari stuff or you know, software necessarily, mostly I collected documentation and magazines and advertising literature and that kind of stuff, uh, focusing on the 8-bit computers. But. You know, again, looking at your website, which is, again, I have to say, you know, it's a fantastic resource for me. I stumbled across your high score list. Yeah. And so you're, you've got a, a list of, I don't know, probably 100 games or more. And, uh, you hear about how that got started? Yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't know quite when it was, but that started out being existing as an Atari Basic program, which was all the print statements. The program was designed to produce that, produce a list like that onto the printer. Um, and I remember that the original title of the document was Official High Scores for All Games on This System. <laughs> and um, every line consisted of three things, the name of the game and a high score if the game produced something that was like a score. And then the third thing was the initial of who in the household had the high score. And there, uh, that's family uh, competition, huh? Yeah. And, and, you know, parents weren't really involved. So it was me and my brother. So everything, every line for a high, game with high score had either an M or a D by it. <laughs> M for Michael and D for Dan, my brother, who's three years younger than me. And so, um, that was, so it became, and at the end of the thing, I, it was totally non-automated, but I kept track of how many M's and how many D's and how many <laughs> games had high scores that could be one or the other. And I always had a tally on the bottom of the thing. Um, and so we, I kept, I think I taped this thing right on the wall by the computer. <laughs> so if there'd be a high score, you always have to have the other one of the two of us witness it in person. <laughs> Once we both saw it, then we'd write on the list, the new score and, um, who it was, and then every so often I'd go into the basic program and update the lines for those uh, games and and then recalculate or um, somehow update the tallies at the bottom of the thing and then print out a new copy and set <laughs> up on the wall. And so we did that for years and um, yeah, friendly competition. I know it was 
in my head, I got to where so many of them were M's. I only, I only would be playing the games that he had the scores for. <laughs> to try to see if I could eliminate all the D's altogether. I know that he sometimes was quite unhappy about that strategy. <laughs> uh, I don't know if I ever quite did it, but I know that was kind of my goal for a while. Um, so, but, you know, in the end, you know, I went off to college and he was still there. And so he had an advantage that way. And plus he was, he was, he was more interested in some of these longer playing games and adventure games, that kind of thing, um, than I was. And so it got to be where I wasn't going to wipe out all of his D's because he had high scores on games that I was never going to have the patience to figure out how to do or how to get a decent score at. So, um, things like, I mean, I don't know that I actually played any real war games myself other than maybe Eastern Front, but I think we, we had, we had a small number and he was more of that kind of thing. And I think there, there was a game called, is it Starfleet One? Um, which I know wasn't, it was, to me it was similar, but it was space based instead of a earth based yeah. <laughs> war game. And, and I know that was a long form game too. So, um, so it kind of probably became more static for a long time. And then at some point when I had my own website and everything, I decided I wanted to have my high scores up there. Just kind of, I think I'm, I guess I'm proud of a fair number of them. Um, cause you go around looking at other people's high scores, you realize those aren't that high. I've gotten <laughs> that. So, you know, I've not actually participated in any of the online ways to share high scores or anything, but I figured I'd just put out what I had from my past. So um, I don't quite remember how I did it, but I, I feel like I would have like made the output go to a text file. And then I used to have a PC with a five and a quarter inch floppy where you could um, put a double density Atari disc into there and read or write mm-hmm. to or from it. And so I would have got the output from a double MC Atari disc to a PC, and then I would have probably manually converted to HTML and then rearrange it so instead of being our little household competition thing, it was just sort of my personal high score list, and it existed like that for a long time. At some point, I started putting dates on them. For yeah, relatively recent. I see some that even have like uh like oh eight and uh, I'm trying to yeah, think. Yeah, I saw an oh nine. I think this morning maybe that was Tempest Extreme. Tempest. Oh, is that one of the um um? That's a recent. Game yeah. That has come out. Um, fairly recent. So, um, because we never did that before with dating them, because uh, we just had to witness it with, with each other. <laughs> So, yeah, I know I've compared my scores to to yours, and yeah, you've <laughs> destroyed me in pretty much everything. Um, and yeah, comparing to some in the Atari Eight Bit High Score Club, you're quite high. Yeah, you? I know. I know not all of them are great, but it's it's basically the earliest ones that we had at the right age, when that was all you had to do, and when your skills are prime. Yeah, <laughs> reflexes are at their top, and uh, yeah. so some some of these are your scores from you know, like your original scores playing with your brother. 
Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know, the ones that don't have dates go back that far. Um, you know, probably, you know, things like missile command to me, I, I never have seen anyone else get a hundred thousand. And to me, I can roll that one over. No problem. That takes a million points. So, wow. you know, we roll over the, the colors. That's always a little goal. <laughs> and that's what I can still do. And Pac-Man, you know, sit down and get a hundred thousand is not a problem. Yeah. 200,000 is definitely more of a challenge, but so I think those skills, a lot of those games, so you got to like memorize patterns and things. So you can't just sit down at after 15 years and remember how to do it all. But I know. Yeah, that's, that is true. I, I feel like you, I could, if I wanted to take that time, <laughs> <laughs> Kaboom is another fun one that in, even in modern days, you, you know, you lube up your paddle controller and <laughs> I can kind of, impress people with how I can keep that game going. <laughs> well, I see, yeah, I got a far higher score than I ever got on Jumpman. That's that's my oh, favorite yeah. game. That was, we played that endlessly. That was a fantastic game. Yeah, and I remember there's a there's an article in Creative Computing where I think, um, I think Dave All actually wrote it, um, where he like, gave strategies for Jumpman. Or maybe that's Dave and, maybe that's Dave and Sandy Small. Oh, maybe I'm getting confused. I don't remember. Uh, I don't there was a strategy article. I actually photocopied it back. I went to the library when I was a kid, photocopied this article, brought it back, and I still have that old, you know, yellowed copy. Uh, still try to play that game. Cool. Uh, Remember the, what was it called? The mystery level where it's just blue and then you had to maneuver through the. Yeah, oh, yeah. You kind of highlights or uh, you, like, the, yeah. Explosive areas. There was like three different ones, and once you know, so the trick was to figure which one it was, and then once you do that, we knew we memorized the whole thing, and so once you knew which one it was, you could just not even hesitate and clear out the whole level. <sighs> you know, people watch us like, what are you, what are you doing? How can you possibly do that? But I mean, yeah, I never, I, I never solved all, the, I never solved all the levels. I never got all the way through. Oh, yeah. So yeah, that's a goal of mine. For I think it's a I think it's an eighty three game, so I have a few few episodes to go before I get that one. But okay, I'm uh, I'm definitely looking forward to that. So um, yeah, I'm looking through your list here. I'm trying to think. There's a bunch of games I've never even heard of. Oftentimes they're obscure things. Or we I typed in we we typed in everything that was in Antic Magazine for years, and so a lot of a lot of them are those. Oh, okay. And then I see some of you have, yeah, some of you have like publishers like Ace of Aces from Accolade, and then, but then you have others that are just names. So those must be the type ins. Yeah, or yeah, I just couldn't figure out who, where it came from. Oh, yeah. It's also possible. Yeah, like if there's, if there's, if it was truly public domain and there's no even author given, then. Yeah, Caverns, Caverns of Mars, you have an order of magnitude higher than my score. <laughs> That's, yeah. <laughs> Classic game. Um, you, it, there's no room for error. You know, just touch. Oh this, yeah, you're dead. very unfriendly collision. I just detection. read somewhere recently that that was someone decided that was a just a programming error where they're using player missile collision in a way that wasn't really good for games because it's not fair to if you just touch by one pixel that you're you're dead and that was a game like that. Um, yeah, and then that one speeds up tremendously after a while. Oh, really? I wouldn't know. <laughs> I never got that far. Which is, yes, yeah, reminds me of Getaway. If you ever gotten to where that game speeds up by a tremendous amount suddenly when you get you know, far. Yeah, I have. 
I remember seeing that, and um, I I played it just a little bit, and because you know I I got it's I don't know it's kind of sad really. I got so much stuff pirated in the place I lived. I had a there's a bunch of Atari people, and we you know passed stuff around and to get things. So I didn't yeah. spend a lot of time on any one particular program unless I really liked it. Yeah. So I didn't I didn't do Getaway. I didn't play that much, but I that's one that's on my list. I'm I'm excited to cover it soon. It's another fantastic game, and another one where if you play it long enough, you'll be sh- you'll be suddenly shocked by the the speed the speed up if you get that far. So oh, yeah, I don't <laughs> I don't anticipate getting that far. Because and the goal is always to survive more than a few seconds when it's at that faster. Oh well. Speed. So <laughs> yeah, that was APX. Did you did you buy any APX stuff? Um, we did. Getaway was one. Yeah. Eastern Front was one. Um, another one I was just going to mention was Ant- um, a tank. A tank, yeah, I've seen that one. I've not played that either. Technologically not impressive, but boy, was it fun. <laughs> was that a two-player game, as I recall? Yeah, two-player game, and it's sort of the, your basic combat-type oh, yeah. game with more scenery and just classic sound effects, though. It just it just made it for just a blast of a game to play. And in fact, in my tiny amount of programming I did, I, I uh, grabbed sound effects out of that game and used them in other programs mine is because the sound effects are so fun. Um, <laughs> Alright, I'll add that to the list too. The Tank was is another yeah, top-notch APX game. Um, I see Defender on here. Um, and yeah, that's just the cartridge. A ridiculous score, 2 million. Do you ever play the uh, arcade game as well? A little bit. That was an awfully hard arcade game. Yeah. As well, everyone knows who tried to play that. Stargate was so much easier in the arcades, but Defender, I am I mean, that was almost impossible. I just well just the the amount of time you had to spend to learn the controls was the Yeah. I think you know, using the joystick on the Atari version, it was so uh, made, yeah, it made much more so much more sense. Yeah. Yeah. Defender is something you could just play forever. It's just like endurance. Well so. you you can maybe I can't, but <laughs> My story on that is that you know on the Atari computer Defender the um, the smart bomb is the space bar, and and we actually wrecked our Atari 800 space <laughs> thanks to Defender, and so um, my dad managed to take care of that. He ordered and it was from American Tank Division, which uh, which was a famous national Atari computer parts source, and it was just replacing a couple I don't know what they were contacts or something, and it was like. A hundred of them for like three bucks or something, and so he used, he used two of them, and so to this day we still have like ninety-eight more parts in case we wreck our space bar again. In Defender. <laughs> well, yeah, can't be too safe. <laughs> yeah, and speaking of games you can play forever, asteroids, it's like that. I mean, it's not a surviving; it's just just endurance. So, yeah, I'm, I've got that's another one I'm going to talk about here in the eighty-one. Season and so I'm going to compare that one, the asteroids on the 8-bit to the 2600, and then to the arcade version. And uh, as I recall, the the 800 version wasn't all that much different than the 2600 version. Although it, I mean, the asteroids, I think they went in more you know different directions rather than the 2600. Kind of they just went up and down and sort of rose. But it was yeah, yeah. I I mean I everyone else at the time that we had our computer had 2600s, and so I definitely had experience with. Games like Asteroids on the VCS. I feel like they, like you said, I think they were pretty more similar than not. I know the computer one had a lot more, I think it had more variations. And certainly the computer one had four player possibilities. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. Occasionally it was 
very fun thing to do. Yeah, nice. <laughs> it's, it's fun to have that four-player option for sure. And uh-huh. kind of, I was disappointed when I, you know, got the XL to realize that it only had, you know, two joystick ports. Yeah. I, remember, I remember playing Mule, you know, with uh, a bunch of people, and that was that was a great game, classic. Yeah, Mule is one that we didn't do in the time period. I eventually bought myself one, but by then I had no group of kids to play with. <laughs> I basically don't know how to play that one. So. It's it's a lot of fun, but it's... I mean, you can play it against a computer, of course, but it, when you get multiple people, it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. More obscure, if we want to talk about multiplayer games, we had Worms from Electronic Arts. Worms, I don't know that you one. Know that one? That's a little, somewhat more obscure because... It's it's like it's barely a game. It's sort of like I don't know what it's like. It's a little bit like the old the really old game of life. You sort of set up patterns and then they take on a life of their own and but but the and so the controls though are the paddle controllers. And so in the Atari computer you would have um, up to four people and there's a, so there's a grid and each people take each player takes a turn um, saying Okay, I'm going to go in this direction toward that dot, and that's the next person to turn to the same thing. Then each you go around again, but then your little worm starts. If any time it encounters a pattern at the dot where it arrived to, where you've already told it what to do when it encounters that pattern, it'll go ahead and move again. And so everyone does that a few rounds, then peep, then the worms start going off on their own because of the patterns, because of the decisions you made. Initially, and so your goal in the end is to, is to, what was it? To not, I think, yeah, I guess it was to not um, land onto a dot on the grid where there were no places to go out again. And so, was it skill? Was it just sort of dumb luck? Uh, we had great fun with that game, and like, and like we were saying, you know, those multiplayer games are sometimes the ones you remember the most, I suppose. So, <clears throat> we didn't have meal, but we had worms. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I mean, my kids are little, but I'm looking forward to having, you know, to play games with, like that with them. So I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to multiplayer games. And so, oh, I see you have Gem Drop here with Bill Kendrick. Right, yeah, Bill Kendrick's modern game. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah, that's right. I forgot. It's your score is uh, 2002, and I'd, I'd forgotten he'd written it, you know, back in the 90s. Yeah, look at all these other ones. <laughs> Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. That was such a tough game. Yeah, that's one that I probably. I have no idea how to even play. That's, I would say that was the specialization of my brother and not me. <laughs> oh yeah, Jawbreaker, one that you uh, you beat my score handily. I think I got three thousand. You got twenty one thousand. So. <laughs> and that was, and that's a modern purchase. We didn't have that in the time. Oh really? Yeah, jump man, jump man. Did you? I didn't see a minor twenty forty nine or did you? Oh, I do. Um, we yeah again I got that later on we didn't have that back then so I I doubt my score is very good for that one yeah that was one of the few I think I had on on cartridge mm-hmm. it was it was some like really big cartridge like a forty k cartridge or something and a bank switched a lot of stuff was the first one like that or just Donny Bob Strikes Back uh yeah well, maybe maybe Donny Bob Strikes I don't remember I. I do have them both now, but yeah, again, those are ones I bought later on to see them. They weren't ones that we had as kids, because we had Jumpman. What else do you need? I know, right? That's <laughs> yeah, seriously, yeah. That's or what's the other one? Electronic Arts had one. Hard Hat Mac. We didn't have that either. That was awesome. That, that other platform game. I don't think I played yeah. that one. I saw I saw that on the Apple. I think, but didn't. right. And there's Kaboom. I don't. There's Kaboom and um, what was that other Activision game? Pitfall Two on the 8 bits. I think has an old has a entirely separate 
sort of hidden level that the that Pitfall Two on the twenty six hundred doesn't have. Okay. <laughs> um, that's I think that's not till eighty four though. So it's like I'm I kind of hamstrung myself with this uh, sort of the way I did that podcast to set it up to do you know by sort of chronologically and now I'm. All these like 83, 84 games, I'm just dying to get to, but I have to slog through 81 and 82. But uh, you, no, I, you, you give me giving me some tips for some early games that I'm I will definitely try to check out. Okay. Um, but yeah, so Eastern Front's the game of this week, and that that's uh, with you know the kids and job and all that stuff. It's hard to get enough time to really devote to play that because it's just the. I mean, you remember playing it, you know, with a joystick and you're scrolling around and. Yep. Yep. Um, yeah, different types of. Um, um, what to call them? Units or yeah, think, infantry yeah. and something else and, and something the else. tanks and the dudes and uh, yeah, and you had to deal with the environment and the weather, and you just sort of I think it's it became a classic modality where you have a turn, you you give them all the orders, and then you hit start in the case of this game, and then you see what happens, then you do it all over again. Yeah, that's right. You yeah, have to do that for hours. <laughs> yeah, hours. Yeah. And it was, and it was, very, it seemed to be virtually impossible to win. But I was told that that was because, well, that's because it's supposed to be realistic, and they don't win in real life. And <laughs> yeah. they're supposed to be able to win, and so somehow that just didn't appeal to me so much. <laughs> yeah, and in reading stuff that Chris Crawford has, has written about later, I mean, that's kind of like it was kind of like the one of the points was to show you know futil- futility of war and and. And and you know of course tactically the Germans made a lot of mistakes and and uh, yeah so I I have from this experience of trying to play Eastern Front I'm like thinking I I'm gonna focus on arcade games because they're easier to, to pick up play and you know, spend get get sort of an experience of the game without having to devote just hours and hours at a setting right so, and for Eastern Front do you have the disc or a cartridge or um I you know I never actually played it this I I'd never played it before so I'm using an emulator um. Oh, and just you know, playing it off an ATR or something. But yeah, you're still emulating one or the other because they weren't identical. Right, that's true. Yeah, so I'm actually I played the uh, I played both, and they're the the APX version is the you know the disc version yeah. or I guess cassette as well. But it only has sort of one game, and the cartridge version has four. It's got a, like a, a super novice sort of introductory version where there's like there's one unit for you and one enemy unit, and you just have to learn how to control. And then there's a couple other skill levels. Okay. Um, and theoretically, it has the ability to save the game, but I, I've never actually been able to get that to work. So <laughs> another reason why I didn't really spend a lot of time on Eastern Front because I couldn't pick up where I left off. But uh, going through some, I'm trying to look at the rest of your games here. I didn't realize River Raid was an had an 8-bit version either. Wow. Is that uh, Activision? Yeah, Activision. Yeah. I guess I guess that's another more modern purchase I've made. Then you have both both the Seamus Seamus and the Seamus Case Two. Right. I remember playing those. And the the Space Invaders is that the original Atari Space Invaders with the sort of the the rocket ship on the left and your yeah 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 and um yeah and we had the cartridge of that because that was the second release of that originally that was a cassette. Yeah, that's right. So yeah, we everyone always thought. I mean, they didn't try to make it look like. The real Space Invaders, but it was fun on its own. And yeah, and that was yet another game where you can just play forever because there was no. It, all I could do is get down to the bottom, and, and once you learn how to clear it when it's at the bottom, you just keep doing it for as long as you want to do it. Really? So. Wow. That's uh, <laughs> I got to the bottom once and just like got 
smashed, stomped. For so for action for more real space invaders, there was you know there was I guess they called it Atari Invaders by Rockland. Rockland, yeah, I just so, I hadn't heard of that company. Before. And that, by the way, was on our little disc of our one little collection of pirate games. Oh yeah, Invaders. So we had that around too. So what, what do you think? What are your favorite games on the eight bit besides Jumpman, of course, because we know Jumpman. Jumpman is excellent. Um, I feel like I used to have an answer for this. I've long since forgotten what it was. I mean, you got to put Star Raiders in there. Star Raiders, yeah. Everyone has to like Star Raiders. You know? And that, especially considering when it came out. I mean, 79, that's just amazing. That's right. First time you know, many people saw the Atari computer was playing Star Raiders. Mm-hmm. So um, that's got to be up there. And it's probably some of the same things we've been talking about, Pac-Man and... And um, Missile Command, like those are two that I go back to even now. Yeah. Trying to think of things that we haven't mentioned that we've played a lot. Um, Archon? Archon, yeah, remember that. Was, we played a ton of that. Far better than Archon 2. Archon 2, they broke the something about the competitiveness. It just was too easy in comparison. Oh, really? I don't. The first one was just had the perfect feel to it. Yeah, I, I never spent much time with Archon 2. Um, uh, let's see, but yeah, so you you played more of the, or you tend to enjoy more of the arcade style games rather than because I remember yeah. playing like Ultima and Ultima 3, Ultima 4, those games. Right, I've never actually played those things. Uh, Ball Blazer. Oh yes, yeah, yeah, that was it was outstanding. Speaking of our little brotherly competition, some for some reason somehow. My brother has some strategy to that game that I he, he has never shared with me. He, I, <laughs> I cannot beat him at Ball Blazer, and I don't exactly know why. <laughs> so he's he's got his way of bouncing off the wall behind him and and scooting around me faster than me. And you know, I think I know a lot about that game, but he knows something and I don't. So a lot of those two-player games that we we would do, we kept doing a lot for some years. Uh, one-on-one basketball is like that too. Yeah, some about the, I mean, the nostalgia of those games. I think is uh, a, a big draw as well. Just remembering how much fun it was. And Blue Max is a great one. Yeah, Blue Max. For that, that that game continues to get harder and more interesting over time if you play it long enough. The oh, city, you get you make it to the city because you picture oh. the you picture the the green landscape and stuff in the river. But there's a city you can get to too if you survive. <laughs> I wouldn't know about that. Wow. Okay. <laughs> and the cities, cities sort of get bigger over time, as I recall. So, um, wow. That's a that's a good one. Yes. You've got you've got my list in front of me. I don't. So I yeah. You're reminding me of more. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, we played pinball construction set. We played with the tongue. Um, the electronic arts bill budge. Yeah. Pinball construction set. With the sort of graphics eight mode, the kind of artifacting mode. Um, There's drop zone. I remember playing that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Oh, Joust. Joust is a really good port to the eight bit. Yeah, it looks excellent, but it's again, it's just too easy. It's, oh yeah. Well, <laughs> we're approaching. We're on two different planes, I think here. With, uh, for for two players, it's great fun, but for yeah. against a computer, there's you can just play that as long as you want. <laughs> but yeah, it was it was definitely pretty well done. I think that was on our. Could that have been on our part or on our pirate disc already? Depends when it came out. Uh, I know I eventually got a cartridge for it. Crazy shootout. 
I don't know that like one. Berserk, we never, I mean, Berserk never actually came out really for the 8-bit computers, but K-Razy Shootout by K-Byte and eventually CBS on a cartridge. That's a fantastic game. Yeah, I, I don't it know that gets, I've seen that one. It gets hard pretty quick. And it's another one of these games where it gets like impossibly fast. <laughs> so, oh. so the levels last you know, a second or two and then you're dead. So, <laughs> so that that's that score I've got on that is a pretty tough one to get to. Well, honestly, all your scores are pretty tough to get to. <laughs> so, I will see. Yeah, I'm a. How about the pole position cartridge? Pole position. Yeah. That hundred five thousand. Is that what it is? Uh, let's look it up here. Yeah, that's right. Hundred five thousand. That's that's um. You literally can't get more than a little bit beyond that. That's like that's like around the top score you can get out of that game because there's only eight laps. There's only so many cards you can pass in eight laps. Oh, right. Okay. So you simply have to play an entire perfect game, and then you'll get approximately that score. Huh. <laughs> but uh-huh. it's quite hard to do that without running into any car ever for the entire <laughs> for eight laps. Time when the entire lap is surrounded by other cars. So yeah, that's a that's a very impressive list, I have to say. So <laughs> you're definitely giving me some, giving me some early games to check out. So it's good. <laughs> I need I need some help to get through eighty one and eighty two. And I think by the time we get to eighty three there's plenty of choices and all. Seems to me like the peak was eighty three, eighty four, and then it Um yeah, I don't know how you terms of quality. You know, of course the Europeans kept producing mm-hmm. and have kept producing more complex and technologically impressive games, but I mostly I mean, they tend to be I don't know how to play them this and like there's this Robo. I've never figured I'd really play that game, so I don't know that one. Although, you know, it's being a favorite games, and it's sort of in between classic and modern, is um, uh, Zybex. Zybex. I saw that on your list here. Which came out of the UK. That is a fantastic game. I don't remember exactly how I got that, but I know what I owned. I think I got it from BNC Computer Visions, maybe. And it was originally much produced in the UK only on cassette. And so BNC was like selling it on disc where they also sent me like the cassette, the original cassette cover. So you kind of own <laughs> the original medium, except I had it on disc originally. But that, there's a bunch of levels to that game. And that I, that was, that was a great one that was later than everything else that we had as kids. So, oh, okay. um, <clears throat> four different kinds of weapons, bunch of different levels. I recommend that. I'm learning stuff. <laughs> it's been been fun talking to you about the games, and uh, yeah, it's always fun to discover that there's other people in the world who are interested in any of this stuff at all. <laughs> I know, yeah. Well, and, and again, I, I have to thank you for all the effort you put into the the timeline and the history because it's been it's been you know valuable for me for the podcast as well as just interesting to read just from the you know the perspective that I've never I've never seen some of this stuff before, and you know, growing up with the Atari, even I didn't know half this stuff, so. Yeah. So it, thanks for all your fun. work. Yeah. Even for me, just to read through it, like through a year or through something, it's like you, you just sort of get a feel for what's going on in a way that you couldn't any other way. So yeah, I, I'm uh, I'm glad anyone thinks it's <laughs> as well. well. Cool. So well, thanks very much, Michael. This was fun. It was fun. Thanks. <laughs> okay. Bye. Bye bye. So I want to thank Michael for the time to record. It took us a while to set it up because I kept getting sick and stuff which happened and uh, so I appreciate his patience with me. The game he mentioned, Mar to Sorrow, I'll include a link to the show notes. I thought about trying to review that in this uh, episode as well, but it just it was too much and it's kind of more of a strategy game 
And as I've mentioned several times, I'm, I just, I have to make compromises somewhere in order to get time to do the podcast. And I, I think strategy games are, are out. It's going to be mostly arcade games for the foreseeable future. Yeah, look at his. I don't think I approach any single any one of his high scores. It's just like yeah, it's a. And well, as you'll see, if you follow the Atari uh, Atari Age High Score Club, you'll see I'm not a outstanding game player by any means. I hope at some point, some point in the High Score Club, I can break into the top half. That would be a good goal for me. Some game I can get to the top half. So, next episode, I got an interview with Chuck Boucher, who was one of the founders of Origin Systems, and did a lot of a. Uh, porting of Atari game or of uh, origin games to the Atari. So yeah, that's it for this episode. I appreciate all the folks who've sent me feedback and yeah, I enjoy hear- hearing feedback. So if you, if you have something to say about the Atari or game suggestions or magazine suggestions, please send them to me. You can reach me, uh, email, uh, feedback at playermissile.com or on Twitter. I'm at Atari 8 bit games. You can get the podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. I don't really mention Stitcher much, but it's on there. If you're on iTunes and happen to feel like it, you can leave me a rating with lots of stars. <laughs> or, you know, the amount of stars you feel appropriate. But I wouldn't I wouldn't turn away five stars if you happen to think it deserves five stars. But I'll leave that up to you. I'm a proud member of the Throwback Network, so check out throwbacknetwork.net for lots of retro gaming and retro-themed podcasts. Thanks for listening, and I will talk to you next time. The pokey music here is from a game called Ditch by Atari Age user CreatureXL. It's a game being used as a bonus game on the current High Score Club round number 12. So if you're tired of Food Fight, and after one day's worth of playing, I'm tired of Food Fight, I'm going to start playing some other games and wait for the next round of High Score Club. I've set my high score on Food Fight greater than zero, and that's good enough for me. So enjoy the pokey track, and make sure to play some Atari today.